Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is Robert Doyle, MD, who is the co-author of Almost Alcoholic. Uh, we had Joe Nowinski, the other co-author, on last week, so uh, you can listen to both and hear a lot about this book. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is Dr. Robert Doyle. We're going to bring him on right now. Robert, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, what got you interested? I saw that you originally started as a DDS, a dentist, and uh, what got you interested in this field? Well, you know, dentistry and psychiatry have one thing in common. It's all above the neck. So it was kind of a natural progression to uh, look into psychiatric treatments. And, you know, it's not so far away from substance abuse. Uh, we know that... Uh, dentists often deal with pain control issues and on a Friday afternoon it wasn't uncommon for me to get a lot of calls about you know someone's out of town and they have a bad toothache could you just give me a few pecker sex to get through the weekend so I've been dealing with substance abuse issues even as a dentist even long before I became a psychiatrist Um, and as far as alcohol goes um, you know uh, in medical school, I really got a foundation in it. I was the president of our Phoenix Society. This was an organization that helped other medical students get help for their drinking or drug problems without having to go through the faculty. So uh, that's a little bit of the background that got me interested in it. Uh, and then, you know, as my work as a psychiatrist, uh, especially now working on an inpatient unit, I would say 80% of my admissions this past week have dealt with alcohol. And this is a general psychiatric unit. You would almost think it's a substance abuse unit with those kind of numbers. Do you also work for the Harvard Health Services? Is that the student services? Do you see students too? I I used to work for Harvard Health Services. Right now I'm working in the partners health care system. This includes like Mass General, McLean Hospital. Those are my uh, base hospitals right now. I'm on faculty at Harvard Medical School, uh, but I'm no longer seeing the students and faculty. I had done that until about a week and a half ago when I took the new position in the, the Harvard teaching program. When you were seeing the students, did you see a lot of students with uh, alcohol problems? Oh, yes. That was one of the common things. In fact, uh, the good thing about it is it, the faculty uh, at the university didn't look the other way. Whenever there was a problem, and a person had to be seen in a clinic due to the alcohol-related problem or was, or had to be confronted by either campus police or the local police, uh, it certainly got onto the radar. So we had a program set up where we would do uh, a motivational interview and help the students see what their relationship with alcohol was and see if we could make some changes with that. Um, it, it was quite effective. We, we were tracking that. I don't have the actual numbers now, but... I just be able to tell you month by month, you know, how many patients were seen in that clinic due to alcohol-related problems. It's been about a year since I worked with the students. My work for the past year has mainly been with faculty and staff. 
Well, I know when we're when we're young, you know, we tend to get reckless. We kind of feel like we live forever, and we take a lot of chances. Uh, did you notice that uh, aspect? Uh, well, when I was a student, yes, <laughs> and my friends did take a lot of chances. It's part of the development uh, in a young, uh, late adolescent, young adult. Uh, so it's not uncommon. And the problem is, though, that at that stage of development, there's a lot of magical thinking. Well, these bad things happen, but of course they wouldn't happen to me. You're young, vivacious, and, you know, you have, especially in college, you have uh, the, wor- the world is your oyster. But it is a sobering fact. I read recently that approximately 4,000 uh, college-age students are killed or college students are killed every year in some alcohol-related uh, death. So whether it was by driving or alcohol poisoning or whatnot, alcohol was directly involved in their death. These are people at the prime of their life, young, uh, full of spirit, intelligent in college, and it, it's the rug gets pulled from their feet. They're, they're no longer with us due to alcohol. Yeah, I think it's an age where, um, it, you know, people are ready. I think people would be willing to learn to take more precautions if they were more aware of it. Uh, sometimes, you know, the prevention programs take on such a preachy attitude that the students are just turned off and they want to do the opposite. But if you're more accepting, yeah, we know that you're you're young, you're in college, you're going to do some drinking. Some of you might even want to get intoxicated. But how about doing it so that you live through it and, you know, nobody gets killed in the process? That's exactly the approach we take. You know, the motivational interview, uh, we call it the basics of the program we use, uh, takes a person where they are in their uh, readiness for change. They may be contemplative, pre-contemplative. They may actually already be in the change mode and then tries to take them to the next step. So it's no use in, uh, you know, going through a lot of effort to tell a person that, you know, uh, say that you should cut back on, drinking if they're not even ready to make a change. The first step is to figure out where they are in this uh, area of change. It may be that they're not even near being ready, but start to work at the level they're in and bring them up a notch, so to speak. And you're certainly right. Uh, You know, there's this magical thinking, it's not going to happen to me, Uh, risk-taking. It's just part of that uh, stage of development. Uh, And certainly, uh, you want to respect uh, these people, college aides, if we're talking about now, because they're intelligent. To talk down to them would definitely be a turnoff. So the best thing is to provide them with information and say, we're here to help and not uh, point fingers or you know scold them. Okay, you said the basics program. Is that Dr. Alamar Latt's program? I believe so. We, we use a computer-based program uh, to go through it. And it's... Uh, what it does is helpful uh, in that it gives them a rating compared to other people on their campus. So we're not uh, basically comparing a Harvard student with a person at the University of Nebraska. We're uh, basing it on the scales that were done based on what other students responded to on campus, how frequent they drink, how much they drink each time. An interesting thing, when you talk about college students, it's hard to uh, give generalities, all right? For instance, consider the average drinking of a college student. Uh, You know, we can get a mean, but there may be a lot of outliers. If we are talking about the rugby uh, team, 
their drinking might be a lot different than uh, those who belong to the evangelical church uh, group on campus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can see that uh, sometimes people have a skewed view of how their drinking is. They say, well, I don't drink any more than my friends. But if you're on a rugby team, uh, you know, that might be problem drinking. I'm not singling out rugby here, but uh, on the other hand, if the person says, yeah, I drink twice as much as anybody else uh, that I hang out with at the evangelical group, and that might be like, uh, you know, a sip of liqueur once a year, <laughs> that would be twice as much as anybody else in their group. So you can see you have to kind of gauge it based on the groups and the people and peer groups you hang out with. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's a good thing, you know, you said you look within one school at a time and compare to the students in one school. I know I went to University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, and, you know, Wisconsin, I think for the past 20 years, has had the highest alcohol consumption per capita in the U.S., and uh, those are some really serious drinking schools. I with LSU undergraduate. You mean you've got the better reputation than us now because I thought they had the most at one point. Uh, but all, serious, all joking aside, this is a very serious topic we're talking about, and uh, you know it's it's a it's a dangerous thing because people think they have better control over it than they do. Do you have any clues of why uh, Wisconsin has such high rates? Um, aside from the weather, I mean, the place was settled by lumberjacks. Um, yeah. So there was there's a big bar culture there. You know, it's it's you walk down the street and it's a hardware store and a bar and a restaurant and a bar and a grocery store and a bar and that's and then three churches on the hill. Right. And what was the ad for the beer that made Milwaukee famous? So uh, I can't remember it, but I remember that from the '60s. That was a slogan for one of the beer companies. Oh, yeah, the but, beer that uh, made Milwaukee famous. I can't remember which one, though. <laughs> yeah, well, that's probably good for us that we don't. Uh, at any rate, uh, you know, it's the same situation where I went to school, an undergraduate at least, in Louisiana. The culture there is about, you know, les bon temps roulés, you know, have a good time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we do have one distinction, at least if you can believe the ads, you know, Pat O'Brien's in the French Quarter serves more alcohol than any other establishment in the world. So, um, University of Wisconsin may have one kudo when it comes to drinking, which is not one they have, but uh, there's the culture that really drives a lot of this. I agree. Now, do you think, uh, I mean, do you see a big difference when you deal with uh, someone that's, say, 50 years old, has been drinking for 30 years, and, you know, be, between them and a young person 20 years old, do they have different types of problems? Yeah, I would say they do. You know, one thing is that the younger person probably has a much more efficient liver. A person who's been drinking a long time, they metabolize uh, alcohol differently than a younger person. So um, that being said, their reactions to alcohol are different. Um, And, you know, a younger person is typically more resilient. They can spring back from colds or sprained ankles a lot better than someone in their 50s like myself. And so it's one thing if a person says, well, I've always drank this much. Well, in fact, you probably, the amount going in has always been the same, but the way you metabolize it has been differently, uh, has been different over the years because your liver is just not getting the alcohol through the system as efficiently as, as possible. 
just just imagine your liver is a filter. You know, if you keep the filter in your air conditioner uh, for year after year after year, it's going to lose some of its effectiveness. And that's the way we are as people. Our livers are one of the filters in our system, and they just don't work as well as we get older. Okay. Stanton Peel talks a lot about maturing out. Do you uh, see that uh, taking place? Well, in this younger group, yes. You know, majority of people in college, you know, go from social drinking and maybe step into the uh, almost alcoholic range. Probably the majority of them realize it's going to be a problem, and they make the change. Some of them don't even need any help. They just have a bad experience, and they go, enough of that for me, and take a more healthy attitude. But there are others that have to keep trying and saying that perhaps, you know, this is one-off, and some of those people do continue to stay in this almost alcoholic range, and unfortunately, you know, about uh, a, a good percentage will go to alcoholic uh, or what we call alcohol dependence in, in the field. But mind you, this uh, most people don't become alcoholics. There are probably far more people who are in the almost alcoholic range that either stay there or kind of reduce their drinking or change it in a way that's uh, more healthy and that they can still enjoy alcohol without having the problems associated with it. Do you see a lot of people um, being successful at moderating their drinking? Yes, as I said, most people do. Unfortunately, there are a few that are probably genetically predisposed or have some other issue that's driving uh, their drinking. Sometimes it could be a depression that they uh, temporarily get some relief with by drinking alcohol, but it's it's uh, not a great treatment because it tends to come back and bite you uh, from behind. Very small doses of alcohol actually can act as a antidepressant. We're talking about a beer or less, but once you go beyond that, it becomes a depressant. So sometimes a person will have a beer, feel a little bit more relaxed, and get a little bit of a boost, and they keep trying to reach to maintain that, but it's very difficult to maintain unless you're very careful with it and, you know, pace yourself very well. It's not a very good uh, way of treating depression, though. In fact, uh, it usually acts as a depressant and makes it worse. Anxiety disorders are the same way. The one anxiety disorder in particular, social anxiety, people sometimes kind of lubricate themselves up with alcohol so that they can bear social situations that are very difficult for them. They have a social anxiety disorder. Again, the alcohol might seem to work at first, but the problem is that many, many of those people, a very large percentage, will become alcoholic if they try to use alcohol to treat themselves that way. There are much better treatments that are not addictive and work much more effectively than you know trying to use alcohol for social phobia. Well, it's been my experience, too, that when people use alcohol as a problem solver, it usually doesn't work in the long term. It's it's better as something to enhance fun. I see we have a caller that's called in, and I'm going to see if this caller has a question for us. Okay. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hey, how are you? I'm doing fine. Do you have a question for our guest? Um, I do. See, uh, I kind of have some personal relation to this topic you're discussing today because uh, 
I'm currently a problem drinker, you know. I wasn't always an alcoholic, but it kind of got to that point where it was one night that it just kind of all went downhill, and I could, it's the one landmark in my life that I could see was just the reason that it happened was I was in my Chinese restaurant, you know, eating some noodles. Um, I already drank a little bit, and all of a sudden I spilled the noodles in my lap, and I ran to the kitchen with third-degree burns. Um, they were playing Guitar Hero because uh, the kitchen was just closing at the time, so... I was running around, you know, having third-degree burns, and these guys looking like samurais were coming over here and, like, tackling me. I didn't, I didn't know what was happening. So um, I just started drinking, you know, and just started drinking, and one guy gave me a Tootsie Pop, and, oh, that was that was the point where I threw up. But it was the point where I saw alcohol really had an effect on my life. It, it made me feel like, you know, the outcast, like Darth Vader and friggin' space. Like, I... I uh, yeah, I, I, I what like it, it's it's amazing what alcohol could do. I, I had such a decline, and and you know I'm stuck here playing Connect now in rehab. Connect on Xbox Live. Um, it's it, you know it, it's really making me look back on my life. And uh, oh, was that a helicopter that just went by? Oh, sorry. Um, no, I'm I, I just can't believe that it did this. It's like, you know, the fuzzy dice in the movie, you know, on the mirror hanging on the car. Like, I don't know. Well, oh, some... and then the grenade, you know, the dude runs in with the grenade and boom, like in The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Some people find that quitting drinking is their best solution, and there's no question about that. I think everyone agrees, and everyone is supportive of those that choose abstinence as their best goal. Our program's always been supportive of that. Oh, I have sex with women. I mean, that's not my... Uh, 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 abstinence from alcohol as their best goal. We're not talking oh, about oh, sex. Meant, oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know why those crazy people twisted up our language that way. Abstinence, <laughs> chastity is the abstinence from sex. Um, yeah, abstinence okay, from alcohol is a solution for a lot of people. So uh, I don't think there's any argument about that. Did you have a specific question for our guest? Yeah. Um. Actually, I do have a question about this topic here. Um. Ever since I was recovering from being an alcoholic, you know, I've I've become a bodybuilder and I'm I'm you know a champion in the lightweight division. Um, I'm really getting far in my career and uh, it's really making me a happy it's making me a happy person. You know, it rids me of the fungus under my ball sack. Well, uh, you know, I really uh, respect where, where you've come from and where you've gotten yourself. That's great. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned is with the bodybuilding. This is one thing that can be a very big motivation to people. Many women are afraid of gaining weight. They want to keep their nice figures. And yet they never consider how many empty calories alcohol is adding to I love diet. women. Yeah. Well, you also, as a bodybuilder, you, uh, can you tell me any positive things uh, in bodybuilding that alcohol will do? It, to me, it seems like it's just another... Uh, hurdle to where you're trying to get as a bodybuilder uh it's it's really kind of like that you know it's replacing one hurdle with another because my you know alcoholism is that yeah alcoholism was very uh very rough on me and i needed something equally as rough but in the positive direction you know i wanted to be like the blues brothers you know jim belushi and then the other guy i forget his name uh he would just, they would just dance around, and Jim Belushi, I mean, he was on drugs, he was crazy, he was funny, but then he died. So, yeah, you know, see, that happens. Wait a week ago, here, and I don't want to die. You know? Yeah, and, you know, your goal of being 
you know, a champion in bodybuilding, alcohol, you know, is empty calories. It's not going to get to the physique that you're looking for, right? So I think that's a, a great idea to, you know, have a more oh. positive thing that you're working towards. That's Sometimes that helps you get. Okay. Okay. I want to thank you, caller, for calling in, and we're going to move on with the interview now to uh, the next part. And um, I want to ask you, uh, Robert, some of tell me some of the strategies that people can use if they're having problems with drinking. What are some of the things that they can do that you recommend in the book? Well, there are a number of things that can help. One is always uh, ask for help if you need it. Uh, there's no reason to struggle over something that someone else probably has got an answer to. Uh, there's professional help. There's help coming from friends. And, of course, with AA meetings, they're free, and you can go to certain AA meetings and just sit and listen. Uh, I had the rare and great opportunity to uh do a fellowship at the Betty Ford Center one summer when I was in medical school. We would start our days with the, the patients and go through their whole treatment. And I learned so much, and I felt that going through an AA model program like they have at Betty Ford just makes a person a better person. Now, the first thing to do is figure out where you are on the drinking spectrum. Uh, a kind of test that I like to use is uh, can you have only two drinks? And people say, yeah, I can have two drinks. And I said, well, let's see. And they try, and they they really need another one, or they really are itching to have that third drink, and it's really harder than they thought to stop. A sign of an alcoholic is not the only test, but one sign that you might have passed through the almost alcoholic range to alcoholism or alcohol dependence is that when you start drinking, you can't control it. So many people who are alcoholic who go, well, that's no problem as long as I don't drink you know, I'll be fine. And that may be a sign of alcohol, believe it or not, because they have more trouble having one drink than having no drinks. And that's why I think the abstinence uh, we were talking about earlier tends to make a lot more sense for people who are uh, alcohol dependent. Another thing you can do is just try to cut back. If you cut back and you're successful at it, Maybe you're back into the social drinking range and you're not almost alcoholic anymore. You've made a change in the positive direction. Cutting back can occur several ways. You can cut back on the frequency of drinking. If you're drinking three nights a week, try to drink two nights a week. If you're having four beers, try to limit it to two beers uh, per night. So these things can uh, be the first step in seeing uh, a more positive improvement in your health and in your relationship with alcohol. You know that it only takes one drink around dinner time to affect your sleep architecture. And uh, today we know more and more about sleep and how it affects our lives. You may not know it's happening, but if we had you in a sleep study and you had a drink one night and you had a no drink the other night, you'd see a difference in your sleep architecture. So drinking in even little amounts can have, uh, you know, some detrimental effects in certain parts of our health. Again, we're not here, Joe and I are not trying to bring back the temperance movement in any way, but we want people to be aware of uh, how alcohol works. If you have a big test coming up the next day, maybe it's not good to even have a you know, glass of wine with your meal. If there's no big test, it might not matter. Okay, you mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous, which uh, it's for a lot of people. Um, 
you know, some of my my friends and colleagues that work in harm reduction and needle exchange also go to Narcotics Anonymous, you know, but I don't know that it's a good fit for everyone. My personal experience... No, yeah, my personal experience, well, I was raised as an evangelical Christian uh, with, you know, my family was were religious teetotalers, and, you know, I've been an atheist since I was 13. Well, I'm more of a pantheist, but I was totally, you know, I got, I tried AA, and I never drank as much in my life as when I was trying to go to AA. Well, sometimes you substitute one thing for another. You know, sometimes, uh, well, at least in the older days, you know, people weren't drinking at the AA meetings, but their cigarette consumption probably went up during those meetings. So uh, our idea is to help people in using whatever is good uh, and helpful for them. Uh, AA is one option. Uh, It could be very good for someone, you know, who still has, you know, the evangelical background where they can put their trust in a higher power. But not everybody can do that. There's Mm -hmm. rational recovery for some people. It uses some of the techniques of AA, but doesn't focus on the power, so to speak. Uh, When I think of the power, I'm more thinking about, you know, the chemical makeup of a person. You know, we can't control ourselves that much just by the way we think. You know, if we're addicted to a medication or a drug or alcohol or whatever, it's something going on at the cellular level, and we need to ask for help. And it doesn't have to be a higher power. It could be, you know, medical help or therapeutic help or even the support of family and friends. So, you know, I don't have any one answer to this. It's what fits best for each person. Not everybody wears the same size shoe, let's say. Well, I can agree with that. I totally support my friends that uh, find AA to be useful or NA to be useful, and then other people like to go to Smart Recovery. Some people like to read a self-help book and do it on their own. Some people are very successful on their own. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, that's true. I mean, there's it's the whole range. And when I said, you know, don't feel afraid to ask for help, I'm not saying you have to ask for help. It's you know it's there if you need it. I, I'm more concerned about the many people who feel like uh, you know this is my problem. I need to struggle alone. Even we as psychiatrists never do that. We have a saying: never worry alone. If we have a problem case, it doesn't help us to think that we can muscle through it. We seek the advice and counsel of other psychiatrists. Two be- two heads are always better than one. And you know I would just let people know that don't be afraid to ask for help. Now of course. You wouldn't go to your boss and ask for help. Uh, that might not be good judgment. Uh, it would put him on notice. But people you can trust, family members or professionals, uh, someone that you can have a trusting relationship and be honest with, and they can help you get to the root of the problem. And oftentimes, you know, there is some other problem driving the alcohol uh, use. You might start just to have fun, but then it turns into you're using it to keep your mind off of, you know, the economic situation where you might be losing your job or the marital discord that's going on in your life. Uh, they can help you figure out what's really at the root of the alcohol use, especially when it's becoming problematic. Yeah, I see those problems as very, very common in the support group that we operate. Um, we have the the alternative here for the people that, they're not succeeding at abstaining or they're not ready to abstain, but all they know is they want to make some positive change. And I, you know, we have the only organization 
as I've said many times, where you can come in and say, well, I want to quit drinking and driving, but I still want to get drunk every day. And we'll say, well, that's a positive change. So we're totally in favor of that. And, you know, once people start making one small change, we see them start making, they decide to make bigger changes later on. But, you know, we yeah, don't force the them. Model of, yeah, that's the model of the motivational interview. You're trying to make a change in a positive direction. It's not an all-or-nothing deal. It's stepwise. Um, and so that's really the way I think it really works best. Some people can have a flight to health, and they just make major changes overnight. Others, it's going to be two steps forward, one step back. But you're still going one step forward when you think of and do the math on that. <laughs> yeah. And some people say, well, I know I'm ready to abstain. Because drinking uh-huh. is working for me. And I'm ready. And so, and then they they can follow that. We have people do that through our program, too. You know, they start by reducing harm, and then they say, you know, it's easier to quit, and I don't want to drink anymore. And we get quite a, pe- quite a few people come to abstinence, you know, that originally just started by saying, I want to be safer. Right. And, you know, I think statistics will support this, that most people who drink do not become alcoholics. But there are a few that do, and they're the... I should say a few. There's many people who do become alcoholics, and in that group, a lot of them are just better if they don't touch it. And they'll tell you, uh, you know, if I have one drink, I can't stop. But as long as I don't put the first, you know, beer to my mouth, it's it's much easier. Uh, you know, in working with people with eating disorders and anorexia, they tell me the same thing. The problem is you have to eat. You don't have to drink alcohol. But uh, many people with eating disorders, these young ladies will say, you know, The problem is as soon as I have something to eat, I can't stop it, and I'm afraid I'll just blow up and gain all this weight because I have no control once I put a piece of cake in my mouth or something else. So, you know, it's a control issue, and I think it depends on the person, and there's a whole range. There's a great number of people you all are helping with these, you know, uh, motivational techniques where you're reducing harm, and that is a very positive change. Uh, again, almost alcoholic is looking at that. How can we get you better? We're not talking about perfection here. We're just talking about bring it to the next step of a healthier relationship with alcohol. Well, it looks like we're about out of time. I want to really thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Dr. Robert Doyle. Well, Ken, thank you. I've learned from you as well and our um, our call-in guest. Okay, everyone come back next week at the same time when our guest will be Pamela Smith-Bell, who will be talking about narrative therapy and harm reduction. So everyone, good night. See you next week.